It's good to see everybody here this morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, I encourage you to look under the chair in front of you, and you'll find a Bible there, and uh, if you're using that Bible, you'll find our passage on page 976, 976, okay? Ephesians chapter 1, I'll begin reading for us in verse 1, and I'm going to read through to verse 14, okay? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory." In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and pray to God. God, we're so thankful for the mercy and grace that You've shown us in Christ. We're thankful for Your Word that reveals that grace to us. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would help us by your spirit. We know and trust that where your word is proclaimed, your spirit is present because the spirit is the author of your word. And so, Father, as we submit ourselves now to your word, we pray that your spirit would come and work and move and change hearts and lives for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we start a three-week series on our mission and vision as a church. It's been a couple of years, actually, since we've done this on a Sunday morning, and it's important for us to do this periodically, uh, to give careful thought and reflection to our mission and our vision as a church. For those of you who may not be members of Berea yet, um, it's an opportunity to learn more about who we are as a church and what we're about. And for those of us who are members of Berea, Um, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded to what God is calling us to as a church and to be encouraged by the progress that, by His grace, He's allowed us to make. So let me state very clearly up front what our mission is as a church. Our mission is to glorify God by enjoying, living, and proclaiming the gospel. In summary, if we were to summarize our mission statement, it would be to be a God-glorifying, gospel-centered church. Okay? Our mission is to glorify God by enjoying, living, proclaiming the gospel. In summary, to be a God-glorifying, 
gospel-centered church. Now, the reason why we have chosen this to be our mission statement is because we believe that this is the central theme of the Bible. Now, let me be clear. You don't have to state it exactly the way we state it. There's a number of different ways you could express the central theme of the Bible. But essentially, when you boil it down, the central theme of the Bible is that God is glorifying Himself by saving and redeeming a people for Himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Another way to say it is that the central theme of the Bible is the gospel. And so we want that to be the central theme of our church. This series, as I mentioned earlier, will last three weeks. And so this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at each part of our mission statement. This week, we'll look at what it means to glorify God by enjoying the gospel. Next week, what it means to glorify God by living the gospel. And then finally, what does it mean to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel? For all these messages, we'll go to Ephesians for our text. Some of you who've been here uh, since the first of the year might have thought it was awkward for us to turn to Ephesians instead of Acts, because right now we're in a series in the book of Acts, so I promise we will return to Acts. We're not giving up on Acts, uh, but we're just going to take three weeks a break and look at our mission and vision as a church. As I've said before, I don't think there's any book in the New Testament that better encapsulates our mission and vision as a church uh, as the book of Ephesians does. And so for the next three weeks, we'll be in Ephesians. All right, so this morning, here's the three things we're going to look at. First of all, we'll consider God's glory. Secondly, enjoying the gospel. And then third, two applications. So first, God's glory. Secondly, enjoying the gospel. And then third, we'll, take, we'll look at two applications. First of all, God's glory. Now, right away in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that Paul is very concerned with the glory of God. So essentially in these first 14 verses, Paul is laying out God's great work of salvation. And in these verses, you notice that three times, Paul reminds us that God has done these things, and He's done these things in the way that He's done these things, in order that He might be glorified. Okay, So look first of all at verses 4 through 6, and we read these words. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Here it is, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. So why did He do these things? He did these things so that His grace might be praised, might be made much of, might be glorified. Then look down in verses 11 through 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So why has He done this? Why has He saved us? Why has He given this this inheritance? So that He might be praised, so that He might be made much of. Verse 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So there it is, three times in these 14 verses, Paul mentions, or Paul points out, that God saves, He redeems, and He saves and redeems in the way that He does, so that He might be made much of. In fact, later on in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which is a fairly familiar passage for many of us, uh, Paul states it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. 
So in Ephesians 1, he states it positively. God saves and redeems. Why? So that we might glorify Him. We might make much of Him. We might praise Him. He states it negatively in Ephesians chapter 2, so that you may not boast. But it's the same thing, right? So that you won't boast in yourself, but you'll boast in God. So that you won't make much of yourself, but you'll make much of God. This is why God saves and redeems in the way that He does. Now, naturally, we might ask the question, well, is this selfish on the part of God? Does this make God a megalomaniac? Well, no. What we find in Scripture, what we come to discover is that God's pursuit of His own glory is not at odds with His love for us. Now, how is that? Well, because we find our deepest joy and our deepest satisfaction in making much of Him. And and we we find our deepest joy and satisfaction in making much of His free, unconditional, extravagant grace and love. And so these two things are not at odds. God's glory and our joy. In fact, they worked hand in hand. The more we seek God's glory, the more we find joy in our own being. So God's glory and the pursuit of His glory is actually for our good and for our joy. God loves us best when He calls us to glorify Him in His grace. So that's God's glory. Now, let's turn now to enjoying the gospel, and there we'll spend more time. At first glance, we might miss that in these verses, Paul is modeling for us what it looks like for one to glorify God by enjoying the gospel. He's modeling it for us. He's showing us what it looks like. So something that's not apparent in our English translations, but is very clear in the original Greek, is that verses 1 through 14 is actually one long sentence. Okay? Now, when I was in school, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, my teachers would tell me that if a sentence got between 20 to 25 words long, that I need to break that off and start a new sentence, right? Start a new paragraph. Here, if you read, in the English anyways, if you read it and you count all the words in verses 1 through 14, you come up with 242 words. That's a really, really long sentence, okay? Paul would get an F in grammar, all right, Um, here in Ephesians chapter 1. But why does Paul do this? Well, essentially what's happening is that Paul gets carried away, right? In verse 3, we see Paul writes, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then what are those spiritual blessings? Well, then he begins to list them. He chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. He redeemed us through the blood of His Son. He's forgiven us. He's granted us an eternal inheritance. He's sealed us with His Spirit. And as Paul reflects on these gospel truths, Paul gets swept away in the goodness of the gospel. And punctuation goes out the window. Right? He just, he just keeps going on. He just keeps reveling in the gospel and all that God has done for us in Christ. And so here in these first 14 verses, we see that Paul is enjoying and delighting and reveling and treasuring the gospel. We could say that Paul is happy in the gospel. And that brings God glory. Now understand this, my friends. That what Paul is doing here in these first 14 verses and enjoying the gospel, if you want to glorify God with your life, this is not optional. This is not just for 
really uh, zealous Christians or really mature Christians. If you want to glorify God in your life, then enjoying Him and rejoicing in Him and reveling in the salvation that He has granted us in His Son, Jesus Christ, is not optional. It is essential. Jonathan Edwards, who is a great Christian theologian, wrote these words. And listen to what he says. He says, quote, God glorifies Himself toward creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. So understanding intellectually who He is, what He has done. And two, and communicating Himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which He makes of Himself. God is glorified not only by His glory being seen or understood, but by it being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. End of quote. You see what Edwards is saying. It's not just enough to know and understand the gospel. Like you can articulate it. You can make distinctions between the gospel and where it's true and other things which are false. You can logically think through it and put it together. What God has done to save us. It's not enough, all that is very important, but it's not enough just to know it. If we are to glorify God as He would call us to, we must delight in it. This is one of the reasons why Paul then goes on in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, and he admonishes the church in Ephesus, which is much like the church here, that we're gathered together here at Berea. And he says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, why would Paul admonish the church in Ephesus to do that? Because the gospel is not simply to be known. It is to be rejoiced in. It's not simply to be spoken and analyzed, but it is to be sung. Do you understand this whole idea of singing? I mean, this is a, this is a uniquely Christian aspect of worship. We gather together and sing as Christians because we are encouraging one another to delight and revel in God's grace shown to us in Christ. So we glorify God as we enjoy the gospel. Now, as Paul reflects on the gospel here in these 14 verses, I want you to notice that he highlights two particular aspects of God's grace in this text. All right, And I want us to consider each one of those as we think about enjoying the gospel. The first is God's sovereign grace. Now notice there's a general statement regarding God's sovereignty in verse 11 when Paul refers to God as the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now this is the God of the Bible. It's the God of the Bible that's presented to us all the way through the pages of Scripture. And this is in contrast to any number of other understandings of who God is. Maybe you've heard of the idea that God is like a divine watchmaker. This is known as deism. Maybe, maybe this is your own understanding of God, whether conscious or not. But the idea that God is the divine watchmaker is the idea that God created the universe, He wound it up like a clock, and then He let it go and develop on its own. It's deism. God creates the world, and then He just kind of lets it go. It develops on its own. He's distant. He's detached from the world. The Bible does not teach us that about God or that that's who God is. Neither is God the 
great chess master, anticipating the movements and responses of his creation, always anxiously hoping to stay one step ahead of the game. So see, something happens, and then he's... And I mean, he's good at it because, you know, he's really smart and he created everything. He's all, but he's, he's always staying one step ahead. That's not the picture of God we get in the Bible. Instead, what we see in the Bible is that God is the sovereign king and Lord. That nothing that takes place is unplanned. Nothing is an accident. Nothing happens by surprise. With absolute sovereignty, he purposes, orchestrates, and oversees all that comes to pass. For his glory. It's a remarkable vision of God. And his sovereignty extends, as Paul says in these verses, his sovereignty even extends to the personal salvation of sinners. In fact, this is a particular emphasis of the Apostle Paul in these verses. Notice in verse 3, he chose or elected us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 11, we have been predestined, and he's referring here to obtain the inheritance of salvation. We've been predestined to receive that inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so repeatedly, Paul points to this idea of God's sovereign grace, that God has sovereignly purposed and planned our salvation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a great Baptist evangelist and pastor in the 18th century, wrote these words, quote, I'm sorry, the 19th century, he wrote, quote, When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. Then in a moment I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make it my constant confession, end of quote. This is one of the things we realize as Christians that when, when we first come to Christ, we think that we're, all, we're doing it, we're, we're seeking, we're going after God. In one sense, we are, but then as we press deeper into our salvation and understand what the Bible has to say about how salvation occurs, we realize that at the bottom of all that, God was seeking us, and we were only seeking Him because He was pursuing us. Amen. Consider the Apostle Paul who penned these words. No one knew this better than Paul. Paul was not a man who was seeking Jesus. In fact, he was on the way to kill Christians in Damascus, and the Lord Jesus appeared to him and knocked him to his feet and called him to himself and saved him. And now Paul, reflecting on that event, says, I know that apart from God's sovereign, electing, predestinating grace, I would have never known Christ, and I would have never experienced his love. And he rejoices. My friends, the reality of God's sovereign grace in our lives, Paul says, is reason to rejoice, to revel, to delight, to treasure God's love and mercy. The second aspect of grace that Paul highlights here is sovereign grace, but then secondly, his extravagant grace. Paul begins in verse 3, going back to the kind of the larger Picture here, Paul begins in verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, and then Paul chronicles the many spiritual blessings that we've received in Christ. He's chosen us, He's predestined us, adopted us, redeemed us through the blood of His Son, forgiven us, granted us an eternal inheritance, sealed us with His Spirit. And so we ask the question, why does Paul go on and on like this? Why does he, why does he list so many of the blessings of God's grace with such vigor and enthusiasm? 
I think at least in part to impress upon us the truth that he sets forth in verse 7. Look there in verse 6. Um, I'm sorry, in verse 7. And he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Here it is. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Paul wants us to know, and one of the reasons why he lists all these tremendous different aspects and parts of salvation, he wants us to know that God is absolutely extravagant in his grace. There's the uh, parable that Jesus tells in the Gospels, the the parable of the prodigal son. And I know that many of you are familiar with it. Uh, The story is that there's a father and there's two sons. And one of the sons insists that his father grant him an early inheritance. And so he leaves home. He goes to a faraway country. He blows his entire inheritance in prodigal living. So his father grants him this inheritance that he selfishly desires. He goes and he blows it. We could imagine the various things he would have done in terms of his lifestyle. Maybe he blew it on gambling and drinking, being with various women. But at the end, it's all gone and he hits rock bottom. The reason the parable is referred to as the prodigal son is because the word prodigal means wasteful, lavish, recklessly extravagant. And this son was truly a prodigal son. He had wasted his father's inheritance. Then Jesus tells us that there is one in the story who outdoes even the son in his prodigality, and it's the father. The son has finally come to the end of himself, and he's making his way back to his father's house. He has his head hung down low, and he's thinking about what is he going to say to his father. He considers to himself, I won't even even ask to be a son. I won't even be asked to be restored to the status of son. I, I don't deserve that. I'll just be a slave and a servant in his house. But as his father sees him coming from a distance, his father takes off running and embraces his son, grabs him and weeps. And he says, bring, bring the best meat, bring the choicest wine, bring the, the ring of honor and the robe. We are going to have a feast and party because my son was lost, but now he's found. And the father is absolutely extravagant and lavish and prodigal in His grace that He extends to His Son. Paul would have us to know that that's the case. As Jesus communicated that in the parable of the prodigal son, or we could say the prodigal father, Paul re-emphasizes it here. Paul is trying to convey that in Christ, the Father is rich and lavish and extravagant in His grace towards sinners. My friends, when it comes to the grace and the mercy of God, God is not poor. He is not a pauper. Paul says he is wealthy and rich beyond measure. And neither is he stingy or a miser, but he is generous and extravagant, and he lavishes his grace upon us freely. Understand as well that God's not shy about this. He's not trying to hide it from you. Like it's a secret that you got to figure out. But rather, he invites us to drink deeply of his grace. Thomas Watson, in a book that he wrote, The Body of Divinity, says, quote, God has twisted together His glory and our good. We glorify Him by promoting our own salvation. What an encouragement is this to the service of God to think that while I'm hearing and praying, I'm glorifying God. While I'm furthering my own glory in heaven, I'm increasing God's glory. 
Would it not be an encouragement for a subject to hear his prince say to him, you will honor and please me very much if you go to that mine of gold and dig out as much gold for yourself as you can carry away. So for God to say, go to the ordinances, get as much as you can dig, dig out as much salvation as you can, and the more happiness you have, the more I will count myself glorified. What an invitation. It's an invitation that we have every day, really, but I mean, even as we think about today, on Sundays as we gather together as a body to worship God together, it's an invitation that we have to come together as the body of Christ and to remember what God has done for us in Christ. And the greater joy and the greater rejoicing and the greater treasuring that we do, the more God will be glorified. Let me make one final point before we move on to our last point. This final point on on this idea of enjoying the gospel. Joy in the gospel, one one of the other things we see here in these 14 verses is that joy in the gospel is doctrinal. What do I mean by that? Gospel joy, as we see here in these first 14 verses, gospel joy is rooted in solid, deep biblical truth. I mean, here's Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, much like our church here, and right out of the gate, right? Notice all the great gospel truths and doctrines that he presents to this church. Election, predestination, adoption, redemption, atonement, salvation, Holy Spirit. And these are the fountain from which Paul's joy springs. It's one of the reasons why we here at Berea believe that preaching is so central. The preaching of God's Word. Because it's out of God's Word that we begin to understand who God is. And who we are. And who Christ is and what God has done for us in Christ and the hope that we have in Christ. And it's upon these truths and realities that our joy is grounded. So serious thought and consideration of God's word and dependency upon the Holy Spirit is the source for deep gospel joy and hope. So who do we want to be? We want to be a church and we want to plant churches where the truth about God and His grace is not just accurately taught and understood, although that's very important, but it is also prized and treasured and rejoiced in and enjoyed because this brings God glory. Now, two applications. Let's look at two applications. The first is this. The first application is live in the goodness of God's grace. Live in the goodness of God's grace. Now, let me show you this. Paul, Paul lays out these great gospel truths in verses 1 through 14, and then he goes on to say to the church in Ephesus, and I really, really want you to get this. So notice in verse 15, so right after the verses we've been looking at, Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And what does he pray for them? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. Do you see what Paul's saying? I really, really want you to get all that God has done for you in the gospel and all that God is for you in Jesus. Then if you flip over to chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, he says, again, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit and the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, um, you may have... Uh, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's the same thing. Paul wants them to get the gospel. He wants them to understand all that God is for them in Christ. So understand, my friends, that to enjoy the gospel is to realize that our faith in the promises of God and the promises of the gospel or our lack of faith in the promises of God and the gospel has a wide-ranging implications for every area of our lives, okay? Let me just give you one example this morning. We could give many. Uh, as elders, we're reading a book right now. The elders here at Berea are reading a book called Crazy Busy, which is a book that a pastor, local pastor wrote. He's not a local pastor here, but someone else but he, he's writing on the issue of busyness and why are we as a culture so busy all the time. One of the reasons we as elders are reading this is because we are all busy and uh, we have a trouble with being, we have problems with being too busy sometimes. And we know that many of you do as well because you tell us that you do. Um, I was reading a blog post by Daniel Montgomery this last week. He is one of the directors of the Sojourn Network. Uh, which is a network that we're a part of. And he describes well, I think, the epidemic of busyness in our day. Listen to this. He writes, quote, I see sixth graders who wake up at 5 a.m. to get to swim practice. They go to school all day. They rush to piano lessons in the afternoon and then come home to work on their assignments until 9 p.m. They strain under the Ivy League expectations of their parents. I see college students who have a mainline IV pumping Red Bull into their bloodstream. They take honors classes and volunteer at soup kitchens to build their resume. They work out twice a day and attend every social event to avoid the dreaded label single. They need to figure out what they're doing with their lives, and they develop a five-year plan. I see young couples with dual incomes and no kids who are rising stars at work, pulling 50 to 60 hours a week. Since they have no children, they feel it's their duty to lead a small group, serve in children's ministry on Sundays, volunteer with the church finance committee, and participate in Saturday neighborhood cleanups. They're exhausted, feel guilty about their exhaustion, and think they'll slow down when they have children. That's not true. <laughs> I see new mothers who are bitter with their sudden life change. Just a few months ago, they were up to date on the latest women's Bible study curriculum, spending an hour every morning pouring over the scriptures and drinking espresso. Now they have a crying baby and quiet times on the toilet. I see a 60-year-old businessman who can't keep up with the next generation. They see younger men willing to work twice as long for half as much, threatening their livelihoods and identities. They work every waking hour despite a failing body, and even though the doctor says they need to slow down or face a heart attack, they don't know what to do. Isn't that a good description of the society and culture we live in? A constant busyness. Well, what is the solution? The solution, obviously, is not to be lazy or idle. That also is a gospel problem, by the way. There are many contributing factors to our excessive busyness, but one of the reasons why so many people are excessively busy, why we, so many of us, are excessively busy, is because we are trying to prove something. We're trying to prove something to our parents, to our friends, 
to our boss, to our spouse, to our kids, to our coworkers, to our pastors. Essentially, we're trying to justify ourselves. That through busyness, just by the very nature of being busy, or maybe by the success that busyness promises, that we're valuable, that we matter, that we're worthy of their praise and acceptance and affection. As a result, we get our priorities all out of whack. We diminish things that are ultimately important and should take priority so that we can give ourselves to other things that promise things that will never come. We run ourselves ragged. We make ourselves miserable. Do you realize that often, so many times, our busyness is really a gospel issue? We could say it this way. We're not enjoying the gospel. We're still, in some way, working to be justified. We're looking for acceptance and approval and love. We're trying to prove ourselves and our worth and our value to others when really what we've done is we've stopped resting and trusting in the fact that God completely accepts us, completely loves us, declares us justified in His Son, Jesus Christ, and is absolutely pleased and thrilled with us in Jesus. The gospel says that we don't have to work for our salvation. In fact, we can't. But God has done the work in Christ. And so I'm free to work hard, which is a good thing. We should work hard. And I'm also free to set healthy limitations and then rest in the full acceptance and love of the Father that is mine in Christ. My friend, are you living in the goodness of God's grace? If you become conscious, and and, and we could apply this to so many other areas of life, whether it's busyness or anxiety or fear or whatever it might be, if you become conscious of your destructive patterns and behaviors and then trace them back to their origin, you'll discover over and over again that you're not believing, enjoying, resting in the gospel. It's a lifelong process of being pressed deeper and deeper into the reality of the goodness of God's grace and living and resting in it. My friends, as a church, we want to be on that journey. We want to be always discovering new depths of God's extravagant grace in Jesus. The second application is this, and it's much shorter. Commit to and pray, I'm sorry, commit to pray and work towards this vision. Commit to pray and work towards this vision. So each week, we're going to be looking at a different aspect of our mission as we go through this series. And then at the end, what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about, okay, the vision. So mission is what we do, but then vision is, okay, what would it look like if this became a reality? So glorifying God by enjoying the gospel, this is what we want to be about. But if we really gave ourselves to this, what would it look like? What would it become in the life of our church? And that's our vision. And so the elders have put together a document, and under each one of these aspects of glorifying God by enjoying the gospel, living the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, we've made a number of observations, bullet points that describe the vision of what this might look like if it became a reality. Let me read you these, and then we'll close. And this is under glorifying God by enjoying the gospel. This is what it would look like if God in His grace made this dream a reality. A palpable love and joy in the gospel is present among us. When we gather together, there's a sense of joy and expectation. We come to meet God, to hear the good news, and to enjoy and serve one another. We long to hear the gospel preached with theological clarity, 
contextual wisdom, prophetic boldness, and authentic joy. We also love to sing the gospel with vigor and zeal and relish the opportunity to express the gospel in appropriate art forms. We love the Bible because it's the revelation of the good news of Jesus. More and more people are reading their Bibles, seeing the value of theology, and eager to hear the Word of God preached and taught. We are seeing that the gospel relates to every aspect of life. Our inclination is to approach everything with the question, how does the gospel apply to this situation? As a result, our minds and hearts are increasingly influenced by the gospel. This is something of what it would look like if this became a reality in our own church, and we can praise God for evidences of this. Corporately, as even this morning as we gather together and rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ, as we hear the preaching of God's Word, as we sing together gospel songs and rejoicing in God's grace, as we come in a few moments to take the Lord's table, we have the opportunity to glorify God by rejoicing in what He has done for us in Christ in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. See it as well in our individual lives as the gospel is taking deeper root in our hearts. As we're coming to learn to trust and rest more and more in the acceptance that God offers us in Jesus. That we don't have to work, but we can rest in His grace. We pray that this would increasingly become a reality. That we would be a people who glorify God by enjoying the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your love and grace. We thank You for Your Word and for how it so clearly reveals to us Your grace in Jesus. Lord, help us to understand it rightly and to rejoice in it in our hearts. Father, I pray that where there are areas where we are blind to our sin, Lord, You would expose that sin by Your grace, even the sin of not resting and trusting in the gospel, the sin of not resting and trusting in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would rest and trust in all that You are for us in Jesus. I pray that increasingly, Lord, we would be a people of joy because we know that You have accomplished our salvation fully and completely in Christ. There is nothing more to do. It is done. It is finished. Lord, help us to understand the wide-ranging implications of that in our own lives. And as a result, I pray that we would be a more healthy, joy-filled, gospel-centered people. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.